I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to a special edition of the Between Worlds podcast, brought to you by Orange Business Services. Well, it's a wonderful uh, summer's day in London, which means it's overcast and grey, and I'm in Canary (laughs) Wharf, uh, sitting uh, with the Chief Information Officer of Clifford Chance, one of the world's top law firms in the Magic Circle, Paul Greenwood. Uh, It's good to see you again, Paul. Hi, good to see you again, yes, it's been a year. Yes, in fact, it was about this time last year that we were both in Washington. That's right, um, that's right. With a, with, with a whole collection of legal technologists. That's right. Which more, sounds terrifying. More than you could ever see in one place in your life, that's right. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's, it's actually extraordinary because I, I remember when I was attending that conference, I thought this is such a new area. But, and, and in the last 12 months, there's been so much that's actually taken place. That's right. Um, so maybe before we, we get to that, it, it, how is technology disrupting the practice of law as far as you can see? Like what are the main areas where, where there's been innovation and interesting thinking? I suppose probably the biggest disruption is, is maybe for the first time in their careers, very senior partners in law firms are having to talk to clients about technology, and I don't think they've ever, <laughs> you know, ever thought they'd do that or ever wanted to do. Because many in this generation actually used to like getting their emails read out after being printed out. That's right. By their assistants. That's right. That's right. There, there are many. There are there are many partners who, who until relatively recently, would not necessarily in this firm, but no. in other firms, who who would ask their secretary every morning to print out their emails. They'd write their replies by hand on the piece of paper, and they give it back to the secretary and the secretary would reply by email. So they were kind of electronic, but, but uh, about one, one step removed. But I think um, if you think about um, uh, a law firm, law firms have many different practice areas that work in different ways, but they all follow um, a similar theme, really, if you like. There's some kind of either research or information gathering or discovery phase where you're going through a lot of data. Uh, there's some kind of legal advice phase where you're telling the client um, what, what you think um, the best course of action would be. And then there's some kind of documentation phase where you're putting, producing some kind of contract, you're writing up some kind of report, generally, generally something for signature uh, uh, and, and to action. And in all three of those areas, I think there's technology that's now really shaking things up in terms of the traditional process. So it, the, the, the kind of the discovery phase is probably um, where things are most active, uh, and whether that's litigation type law or non-contentious transactional type law, in both areas, AI and machine learning is really changing the way that um, we've traditionally approached that kind of work. Up until now, it, it's been very manual, it's been getting people with a lot of either hard copy or electronic documents and r- physically reading them, mm. extracting the key things, writing up a summary uh, and presenting it at the client, which is, is not just expensive, but it's also incredibly tedious for the, for the, for the people involved. Um, but in both of those, in, in, whether it's litigation in terms of, of researching for a case or one-off, or whether it's transactional type work, AI is now showing its ability to read that information far more quickly, far more efficiently, and importantly, with a very high level of accuracy. Right. And that's really shaking things up. Um, uh, and uh, we can get, we'll come back to that, I'm sure, because machine yes. learning and AI is probably all anybody wants to talk about these days. <laughs> but in the other areas as well, there's perhaps less dramatic technologies that are also shaking things up. So in terms of the legal advice, area. Um, there are now some quite interesting expert system or decision tree type software coming to market that is allowing you to embed a legal thought process, even quite a complex legal thought process, in software quite easily 
and make that available to people without having to have a very senior partner sat there giving his personal So, so essentially automating a legal brief. Exactly, right. exactly. And the beauty of some of the new technology that's coming out now is, is lawyers very rarely answer yes or no to questions. If you, when you talk to them, you'll, you'll find this out. They generally say, it depends. And the key, the key of the software is to be able to handle the it depends, the grey areas, and get, get, still get you through to a sensible answer at the end of it. Yes, I remember when I, when I, when I went through law school, I think one of the favourite phrases was, is in the, in the alternate. That's right, that's right. Another one is on the, on the one hand and on the other, you yeah. know. Um, and, and, and in the third, in the third part, the which is sort of the, re, the report writing, the... Yeah, so again, document automation software has come on leaps and bounds. So right. it's now, used to be you needed a degree in coding to be able to work it. And now, really, if you could mark up a document by hand, you can almost use this new software now and automate processes. And particularly in the consumer space, that's really shaking things up a lot, actually. So things like, look at things like LegalZoom. They rely heavily on this kind of document automation to keep the costs down, but it's now very much part of, I think, major law firm, big law offering. They're actually, for frequently used documents, we're, we're predominantly now automating those as much as we possibly can. Let's uh, let's dive into some of those. So in, in, in sort of the area of data and, and, and analyzing all that, I mean, discovery is a really fascinating case because uh, I think many people predicted that it would actually uh, start to chip away at, at, at lawyers being hired. but. Strangely enough, it seems that as there's more software in the discovery area, more discovery is taking place because it's getting cheaper and they actually need more lawyers to run all these cases. That's right, and you can get you can get bigger and bigger data sets coming on. You know, right. When it was physically impossible to read through 40 million documents, no one would ever... It's actually generating more work. That's right, that's right. Yeah, so actually, in a sense, what sh- the software that could have made everything cheaper the law of inadvertent consequences can actually end up making things more expensive. So what I know that uh, Clifford Chance is working with Kira, I believe, and there are a number of other players in this area, That's right. uh, like Ross, um, which is based off Watson. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about what these systems actually do and, and I guess where the AI is actually involved? Yeah, okay. So I tend to talk about three waves of these kinds of, of, of tools coming to market. The first wave is the one that's well understood, which is electronic discovery in, in litigation, the, the kind we just talked about, which is a one-off thing. You get a data set of 30 million emails um, and... The, the, the Enron corpus. The Enron corpus, exactly. That, every every <laughs> vendor tests out, tests out its software and demonstrates it on the Enron, because that's the biggest publicly available data set, right? Um, uh, but that's a one-off. You know, you're not creating any intellectual property from from that. It's a one-off. You train it to, to look for look for um, uh, certain things related to the case, and it groups and prioritizes the data for you. Isn't it an odd irony that this sort of uh, poster child of uh, you know corporate uh, excess has sort of become the training model for the training for, model for next generation for legal AIs? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. This every cloud and all that is a as a silver lining, um, and actually, it's quite fun to play with the the Enron data set if you ever if you ever go on the uh, on the websites. Um, but that doesn't give you any intellectual property. It improves that case, but it doesn't develop any any new insights really right. in in the long run. Uh, and I think the second wave that, that's really hitting the market right now is is the type that we talked about with Kira, uh, Raven, uh, Legal Geeks, uh, Seal. Um, and, and, and several others. Um, the one we've partnered with particularly is, is, is Kira, I think is a public domain, but there's many other interesting tools out there as well. Uh, and what they're doing is they're, instead of just saying, here's what I think this email is about, or here's what I think this Word document is about, it's drilling inside the Word document and it's disaggregating it into its parts and it's saying, here's what I think the parts of the document are. So right. in a legal document, that's quite useful because it can actually say, here is a force majeure clause, here is a guarantee clause, here is a warranty. It can actually tell you where the relevant sections are. So. 
the classic example to illustrate the, the, the use case would be um, if you're doing M&A um, and uh, a, a company is changing ownership, one of the things you look for are change of control clauses in documents, hmm. whether they're you know, uh, uh, sales agreements, um, uh, real estate leases, whatever it is. If there's a change of controls in clause then that, that potentially gives somebody the right to terminate if there's a change of control, that's a potential problem for the buyer. So you need to do that. And quite often on big M&A deals, you might have dozens of lawyers slaving away looking for all these documents for, it, for which have change of control clauses and then what type of change clauses they are. Something like Kira can go through those documents in seconds and very quickly tell you on a matrix, here's the documents, here's which have change of control clauses, here's, here's which have assignment clauses, et cetera, et cetera. And then take you directly to those clauses in the document with a very high degree of accuracy. Right. So it speeds up the process, it makes life a lot more interesting for the lawyers. And using what we have found is that using man and machine together gives you a cross-check. This sort of the centaur team type approach. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, this, this was something that always fascinated me out of, um, you know, when uh, the, the famous Big Blue Chess uh, versus uh, yeah. Kasparov was that they discovered out all of that. It wasn't that humans are better than machines or machines are better than humans, but machines and humans together yes. can actually create a more effective workflow. Yes, exactly right. So if you're, if you're statistically minded, and it's a big gamble saying statistic on a podcast, I think, but if you are, then, then there's, there's two measures of accuracy. There's recall and there's precision. Uh, forgive me if I'm telling you what you already know. But recall is how much of what you should be finding do you find, and precision, which is how much of what you found is relevant. So they're two right. slightly different. And what you tend to find is that machines are better at recall. They don't miss very much. But humans are much better at precision. Right. Because sometimes machines overfit the data. Exactly right. Um, one of the things that, that sort of has puzzled me about this is that, you know, how deep can this go? Like, so can it actually also cross-reference relevant cases against the clauses that, are, that appear? Can it show you things that are divergent from what should be there? Yes. So that's an interesting new development that tools are now starting to get, which is looking for anomalies. Right. Uh, so they can start. And can this be trained against, you know, a firm's own internal knowledge, or is it sort of based off a, a general industry? Yes. So when, when, when the tools came out, they, they were predominantly kind of off-the-shelf type things. So here's what they can do. But I think people realise that the use cases are so diverse, you never quite know how the law firm wants to use it and what right. cases are coming in and what transactions are coming in. So now more and more they're about allowing you to train them yourself which is where we as a firm see an interest because we can generate our own intellectual property. Yes, and it, so this is, this is an interesting source of you know, competitive advantage, which is you're not just using an off-the-shelf tool, you actually have a learning tool which can be trained against the whole firm's accumulated knowledge. Exactly, exactly. So the potential there is really quite interesting. And you could say, okay, any firm can go out and buy Software X, but we've built up a library of models that actually we've trained using the rabest lawyers in the world to be, to be accurate, and actually we can bring that to bear on your matter. That's potentially a unique offering that no one's ever really had to think about before. And, and how, how have you sort of started to approach that? Um, one of the areas is building up practice by practice sort of new things we want to look at. So, for example, out of the box, the example I gave you before was a change of control clause. Right. But actually, there's, we think there's probably four different flavors of change of control clause. We're actually starting to look at, well, <laughs> can we actually train those four? So actually, we have the software that a firm down the street has, but we actually have it as a level of accuracy that's beyond what they've considered because we've kind of taken it a level, a level, level beyond that. 
And I think the, the, the going back to your point on anomalies, that's, that's quite interesting as well, because then you can start to look at things like heat maps. Right. So, for example, lending in the lender market is predominantly modelled on something called the Loan Market Agreement Standard, which is a, a general standard. But then what you find in a portfolio of loans is deviances from that. So what's interesting is to use the kind of tools to generate your heat map. Here's where the biggest changes are, and here's where things look remarkably standard. So you can focus your lawyer's precious time on areas where they need to be focused. And, and, and this is also useful in negotiation because it allows the parties to actually focus on the true issues of contention. Yes, exactly right, exactly right. You mentioned um, a number of waves, so that was wave two. Is there a third wave coming? I think with the, the, the third wave, because <laughs> not none of the wave one or wave two really understand the language. What they're doing is they're looking at statistical patterns. Right, they're not really cognitive. Exactly right, so I think that's the third wave, where it actually starts to understand the language. Uh, and I think once you get to that, then you can start to do some, some very interesting things. Because I, I mean, ultimately, when, when we're looking at these tools, we tend to be looking at them, looking at them for, for a point purpose, but ultimately, I think the lawyers very quickly move from that idea to, well, this would be great in our document management system. If it was constantly looking at what, what our accumulated knowledge is and looking at patterns, looking at trends, looking at how the market's moving, looking at interesting things, interesting developments that we could actually mine cognitively mm. to talk to our clients about. Well, th this is a powerful idea, I think, for even people that are not involved in the legal field because there is so much accumulated knowledge based on agreements, in relationships, in contracts that even a manufacturing or a sales firm would have. Yes. Um, but, you know, when a senior person leaves, all of that goes. Yes. But if you had the ability to use similar learners to essentially parse all that data, yes. it, it would give you a bit of a sense of what the competitive advantage of a firm's knowledge could be. Yes, exactly. And there's all sorts of different things that could be fascinating. You know, one of our partners is quite a, very interested in the idea of the, uh, the over, over the economic cycle, contracts tend to move from buyer-friendly to seller-friendly right. and back again. So it's, like a, it's like a shift in the balance of power. It is, like a shift in the balance of power. And you can probably use that as a, as a predictive model for the economic cycle. <laughs> Being a law firm, you know, producers think we could actually be early in that cycle to the extent where we could predict how things are moved, how near the top of a bubble you might be, yeah. based on some of these indices. Well, I mean, the, the, the other side of that as well, which would be interesting to see how that evolves, is that this is quite reactive. It's designed to parse negotiated agreements. Yeah. But how do you weaponize it? Yes. I, I mean, if you now have a, a well-trained contract AI that knows all of these precedents, and it's now negotiating with another AI. How does that play out? Oh, then, well, then you're into the realm of smart contracts, right? Right, okay. Yeah, so I think quite, quite quickly. So, I, I mean, yes, that, that's the whole topic unto itself where you potentially could have things executing themselves. Well, we, 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 we had this interesting case with Facebook recently where Facebook was training two AIs to negotiate and barter over something. Yeah. And I think they were disturbed by two factors. One, by the amount of deceit that both the AIs quickly adopted. <laughs> and secondly, that they actually stopped talking in a normal language. They actually um, generated their own machine code. That's right. To speed up the process. That was quite frightening, wasn't it? It's, <laughs> like, it's, like, it's like twins having their own private language. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I think, I think where, where we're probably gonna see some as those developments first is in the financial markets where you know the, the, the same vendors are dealing, the same buyer and seller are dealing with each other constantly as both buyer and seller. You know, and there's a high level of trust between the major banks, for example, in derivatives contracts. And, right. and, and because of that, that kind of trust and that kind of constant market and constant buying and selling, it allows you to do things perhaps you, you can't do in, in some other areas where buyer and seller are more distant. So derivatives 
was one of the areas. I mean, if you go way back in time, um, derivatives contracts were all unique. And it's one of the areas, first of all, where law firms developed standard form contracts amongst themselves, but then that quickly moved to a, an industry-wide standard form under the auspices of the AVISDA, which is the International Swaps and Derivatives Association. Um, and they, they really developed a market standard that across the world is, is predominantly still used for all derivatives transactions. This is like the world's first smart contract, essentially. Exactly, which was automated. Right. Uh, now it's becoming an area where people are really exploring blockchain and smart contracts. Mm. So it's, it's always been a kind of canary in the coal mine, if you like, of, of early adoption because of its level of standard and the level of trust between the participants. And, and there's, a, there's a level of misunderstanding, I think, around some of these new platforms like Ethereum because people perceive them to be like speculative digital money, like blockchain, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like Bitcoin, rather. But it, it actually isn't, is it? It's, it's, a, it's a computation platform for yeah. potentially executing these, these very smart contracts. Yes, yes, exactly right, exactly right. So I think... Um, so. If you take a derivatives contract today, um, we've done a lot to standardise the agreements, but even so, after the transaction is um, closed, there's about a three to five days of other work that the banks have to do to put everything in place in terms of the security, in terms of settlement, reconciliation, all Usually with a fax machine somewhere involved. Definitely email, <laughs> maybe maybe even a fax machine with a signature on it, right? Yeah. So this is really, so it goes from, from sort of high tech to low tech very quickly. I think what, what you could envisage very quickly is there's a derivatives kind of distributed ledger where the banks have. There's some kind of cash distributed ledger between the banks and some kind of assets based ledger. And you could imagine that as the derivatives were revalued, which could refer to the NASDAQ index or whatever it is, that could then execute an exchange of assets on the ledger and at the final settlement point, an exchange of cash. And because the banks are constantly changing, exchanging cash all the time, that that is actually possible to imagine that that could be one of the first applications of that. So, if you step back and look at this process from a you know a human value standpoint, in the old days, human beings and lawyers would be actively involved in every aspect of that of that chain. But with greater levels of automation, it puts more of the emphasis on the value creation at the start of the design of the absolutely of, of the system or, or the uh, or the automated flow or the program yeah um, so you know one of the things I've been fascinated in is what, how does how does this change the kinds of people that will essentially be lawyers in the future yes that's a huge question yeah uh, but I mean it must be something that you have to grapple with now because you have to hire these people Yes. Well, exactly. I mean, I don't think um, uh, until recently we ever thought a law firm would hire, be hiring data scientists, but we actually are. We are actually have a data science team now. Um, so I, I think there's a number of things. One is that I don't think lawyers are going to go away anytime soon. I think I think the demand for legal Shakespeare services, will be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But but people who work in law firms, perhaps less so. Um, <laughs> But I, uh, the analogy I use is, you know, when, when the autopilot came in, we didn't get rid of pilots. You know, you you you, you still need that uh, that that reassuring presence there, and and you probably always will. But what it does, the autopilot allows that pilot to focus on the things where they're really adding value. Right. And so I think it's like making that announcement just after they serve drinks. Just after, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and to tell you that uh, the, this the most important uh, briefing you'll receive all day is uh, is a safety briefing. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think well, I, I don't think lawyers jobs are going to go away, but I think they'll perhaps look a little bit different. I suspect the the, the shape of the pyramid will start to adjust. Uh, there'll be more of a premium on the, 
top of the pyramid, the architect of these new contracts will, will need to be a very different kind of lawyer and hugely valuable, right? adding enormous value at the start. But as you say, the, perhaps the, the leverage model will look a little bit different. There may be less of the more routine work down the chain. That, that could be potentially confronting to the traditional top of the pyramid in a law firm. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is generally someone who's a little bit more traditional when it comes to technology. Yes. Yes, I think that's I think that's true. And I think one of the problems I think many countries have, and I'm thinking we're sat here in, in the UK and it's particularly true here, is is this this educational process that tends to group people into arts and science as separate things. Yes. Uh, Lawyers many times have gone down the arts path, and, and, and in, in the UK educational process, it's very easy to avoid any focus on maths, science, some of those things. And I think really we, we, we need people who can bring the two things together, the left and the right brain at the same time. That's yeah. going to be the challenge. I well, think. in other fields they talk about this as the skill being computational thinking. Right. You know, it's not necessarily, in fact, it generally isn't the ability to program, but it's the ability to understand abstractly how an algorithm works. Yes. And how, to, how the logic of, you know, phrasing an argument and using a computer to help you solve a problem. Yes. Yes, that's right. So I guess if you think tactically now, you know, in the example we were talking before about discovery, you, you've essentially got these new generation lawyers already today sitting down with programmers. You know, it's a very different discovery process. So, so what are the kinds of things that these new generation lawyers are having to do or think about or, or sort of the skills and capabilities that they didn't have before? Uh, one is awareness of what, what the art of the possible is. Right. Um, so understanding more about technology. I mean, we've just held a huge event here on the fourth industrial revolution, great attendance in the auditorium here, talking to some of our youngest lawyers about what, what is coming down down the track, um, what technology can do that perhaps you, you don't realise. Um, and, and that awareness building is, is quite a challenge given that new technology is arriving at a, very, at a very rapid rate. I think there's a data piece of this and a, and a, and a data science piece of this. Right. I think understanding what things like R squared means, what things like precision and recall mean, what a F score is, some of those Bayesian, things. Bayesian logic. Exactly. So <laughs> those things, I don't think lawyers will need a deep understanding of of it, but they'll need to understand there's a point at which you can see that the model has become accurate right. and actually is reliable, and understanding where that boundary is, and did you have enough data to make an accurate model or not. Some of those things are going to become more important. Because it, 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 it will almost be the basis for challenging algorithmic decisions as well in the future. Yeah. Because that's the other thing I, 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 was, I was hoping we'd touch on is that, you know, one of the biggest risks even outside of the legal field, uh, but, you know, um, everything from the way that credit decisions are made to, um, uh, I guess, to the way that companies are run and governments administer, it's going to be on the basis of algorithms. Yeah. And there are increasingly algorithms made in by machine learning black boxes where we don't have full transparency or accountability. Yes. So do you think there'll be a key role of lawyers to essentially be challenging these algorithms as well that, that make so many decisions? Well, there, there's a very, yes, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole interesting debate around that, isn't there? There's the idea that, that if you... Um, uh, if you have a self-driving car, uh, right? The, tro so the, the the classic philosophical trolley problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly right, exactly right. So, yeah. so you do make the algorithm go one way or the other way, and if right. so, are you to blame if it does if it does that, and if someone's hurt in the process? I guess for for those of you listening who are not familiar, this is a, a classic case of um, philosophical problems, which were actually predated computers. Yes, um, about you know whether or not um, a self-driving car, in this case, 
should swerve and uh, to save a passenger and kill its driver, kill its own driver, yeah. or or not, and whether you should yeah. give that kind of agency to technology. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so th there's some very grey areas. So, for example, at the moment, most of the big banks, when they're when they're looking at um, your kind of um, phone app that's going to be your financial advisor, they're actually not looking at AI at the moment because they can't have the black box. They've got to have a complete audit trail of whatever it's recommended hmm. because that's what regulation demands. And I think what the industry will be looking for, the legal industry, the financial industry and others, will be for regulatory approval. So how, if we're going to use AI and we're going to use some of the, the technological abilities, how do you get regulatory approval to say, that's okay, you've been diligent, you've done due process, and actually what comes out of the end is okay. And, and that is is not where current regulation is. Have there been any algorithmic cases yet? Like, I, I'm wondering whether challenging algorithms is going to be an offshoot of administrative law or something like that. There's lots against Google's search algorithm, for example. You know, right. say how it prioritizes and this. this, so this and also the right to be forgotten, I guess. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so we have just uh, recently been involved in a, in a case uh, uh, with the EU and Google, where we're looking at whether it artificially uh, promoted its own search results over other people's, uh, so there's a lot of there is growing amount of case law in that area, hmm. um, and there's probably going to be more realistically. And then you get into the area all who understands this, <laughs> and if it's a black box, how how do you understand it? So we've talked a little bit about how um, technology is disrupting the industry and the changing role of lawyers. Um, I'd be really interested now to, for us to spend a bit of time chatting about. I guess the changing structure of law firms and how clients consume um, legal services. Uh, I, I, when I was preparing uh, for the conference that we met at, I remember speaking to Mary O'Connell from Google, yeah. and I was fascinated the way these sort of next generation clients are investing in legal operations teams to essentially make the way they consume law more effective. And clients are forcing law firms to similarly be more effective as well. Yes. In the way. And, and I know Clifford Chance has spent a lot of time thinking about what your support group might look like. Yes. Exactly. So, so, so how, how, how do law firms become more efficient? Yes, exactly. So there's a lot of pressure from clients right now. They've all seen their their cost of compliance increasing. They've all, I mean, many of the um, the big financial institutions, of course, are paying billions in fines for, for various breaches, and they're very focused now on well, how do we get more efficient? How do we get better results? How do we get better value for money? And they're also treating you guys as suppliers now, yes, along they are. with the people that deliver the stationery. <laughs> <laughs> I don't was slightly higher value, than a bit, a bit, uh, but, but you can take a view on that. Yes. So we, we're very focused right now on what we call best delivery. It's our kind of catch-all term for using process improvement like, like Lean and Six Sigma, technology, project management and other disciplines to actually improve the efficiency with which we deliver legal service to clients. So we've often used technology and process improvement to improve our own efficiency internally, um, but now we're really focused on improving the delivery to clients of the legal process. Um, and we're actually investing quite heavily in this, not just in technology tools, but actually in a, a new breed of people we're calling legal technology specialists who are actually kind of lawyers who come with a technological mindset and actually can work on deals, on cases, uh, alongside the traditional fee-earning lawyers uh, in right. a new way. And um, what's their main remit? Are they looking for essentially ways of improving efficiency, leveraging yes. technology? They're bringing ex expert advice into the matter team to help that delivery. Huh. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and also uh, legal project managers, again, with a special focus on legal projects, not just general projects. Uh, and uh, we're hoping that these can really change the mindset of our internal teams, but also the way clients see us. Ultimately, we'd like to think that they will be regarded as fee earners just as much as 
traditional lawyers, because like, they're adding value to the client process. And as part of that, I mean, part of the relationship changes as well, because clients will be essentially subscribing to some of the software that you're developing as opposed to just paying by the hour, presumably. Yes, exactly. And this is a very different model because traditionally law firms have been you charge by the hour, you pay by the hour, or you pay just a complete fixed fee. But the idea is actually we've developed these complex AI models that we're bringing to bear on this document set. That's going to allow us to reduce your risk or it's going to allow us to do new things. Therefore, we think there's a value to that. That's a different conversation than perhaps we've, we've had between us before. So if we think 10 or 15 years in the future and you're interviewing the you know, a position for the algorithmic lawyer of the 21st century. What are the kind of skills or mindsets or qualities that you'd be looking for in that person that perhaps weren't so important 10 years ago? Right, well, they still need to be a great lawyer. That's, that probably goes without saying. And super bright, that, that goes without right. saying. That's, that's the same as today. But I think a, a much stronger understanding of, of how technology works and how it can add value or, or reduce or improve the efficiency of the legal process. I think more understanding of of data and I think uh, more of a problem-solving focus. So I think um, we've traditionally been let's minimise risk and I think the, probably the future lawyers will be more about how do we solve problems in different ways. And there would be a variety of things in the toolkit and it's a question of understanding how we most effectively solve this particular problem using this wide variety of approaches, techniques, tools, models, other things. And, and that also presumably would be a very useful skill to have on the client side. So yes. would you see the in-house counsel also changing their role in their relationship to the CEO and leadership team? Very very much so, actually. As, in, as, a, as a good point, yeah. I, I think more and more we should hope to see the combined clients law firm team. I mean, it's very interesting. We've been looking at one particular new piece of technology at the moment, which allows you to, to give legal advice on particular issues in a very efficient way by embedding this thought process in software I, I mentioned earlier. Showing it to clients, what they say is, well, that's interesting, but it would only really be of high value if we then connected it to our internal compliance systems. So you give us what it means, but that <laughs> thing flows through into then what do we have to actually physically do inside the bank. Right. So actually you connect our system to the bank system, and then when we make a change here, it flows all the way through the bank system. So actually it's one seamless supply so, chain. So you almost have like a legal AI in the cloud, which is your IP, which then talks to their implementation subroutines. Exactly. And so you take it from not just legal advice, but it becomes operationalized through a supply chain that takes it all the way inside the, the middle office, the back office of the bank. Well, Paul, who would have thought the future of law was so fascinating? <laughs> it's a very exciting place to be. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your insights. You're very welcome. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.